Welcome to Afternoon Delight, an ongoing conversation about branding, leadership, and most importantly, love. I'm Jay Rendon in San Francisco, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Solomon in New York City. Eric, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Jay. How are you? I'm very good. I'm so happy to be talking to you on episode two. You were traveling. Uh, Did you bring your water skis or your snow skis with you this time? Uh, It'd be my water skis. I'm currently looking out at the Pacific Ocean or trying to through the layer of fog here in Half Moon Bay. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, today we have uh, another big topic to talk about, leadership. Mm -hmm. And I'm really curious to hear what you have to say on the matter. But before we start off, we like to kick each episode off with a little non sequitur, an amuse-bouche. Sometimes it's an idea, an insight, a recommendation. Today, it's a practice, something I do on a regular basis as a part of being a creative thinker. Mm. The other day, I was listening to a podcast. I listen to a lot of podcasts and I listen to a lot of history podcasts. <laughs> and I was listening to Aaron Menke's new podcast, Unobscured, which I highly recommend if you are at all into history. It's on the Salem witch trials, of all things, Ooh. something which I knew nothing about. But the, I'm not actually recommending the podcast, per se. What struck me was the theme music for that podcast, which is a really beautiful piece of music. And every now and then, um, I will hear a piece of music or sometimes see a photograph or an illustration or hear a word or a phrase. And I don't know why, but it catches my attention. And I think, ah, I, something about that is great. And I found over the years that as a part of my creative process, I will capture these little bits of inspiration. It's, you know, it's, it's weird even to call them inspiration because a lot of times I'm not even sure what it is about it that sort of tickles my fancy, but I'll capture it and put it. If it's a written thing, I'll put it. I have, I have a stack of journals. I've also got folders of images, uh, clips of, of audio files. And, and this definitely caught my ear. And I, I thought I, I need to remember this because maybe, um, I'll do some research to figure out who the composer was, or maybe there's a, something about the theme. I'll get inspired when we're needing to create some music for uh, a video we're creating. And I find that that practice of collecting these little bits of ephemera without a, an express purpose is useful in a couple different ways for me. One, um, sometimes I get stuck just like all creatives get writer's block. And it's great to go back to those things and see if going through these little pieces uh, jog anything loose in me and inspire me to go in a, a new direction. Mm-hmm. But the other thing that I find is great about it is oftentimes I will make sort of subconscious connections between things as I'll go through and I'll, I'll think, Oh, that I saw that really interesting illustration and now I'm hearing this music and wow, these really work well together. Maybe there's a way that we can combine these. Oh, I, I love that. I, I love that idea of uh, kind of connecting the dots between things that that don't necessarily have a linear path between them. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, that is oftentimes when we're working with clients, it's really easy to fall into the trap of, you know, where you, you know, what the client wants, you know, what the problem they have. And it's very easy to sort of chart a direct path to that problem. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that doesn't lead to the most interesting ideas and, and sort of opening yourself up to new inspiration 
you know, hearing things differently, seeing things differently can often, at least in my case, lead to some interesting results. Wow. That's very thoughtful, Jay. And I would expect nothing less, nothing less from you. (laughs) Well, how about we move on to our topic? It's a big one. Yeah. Eric, tell me about being a leader. Wow. I mean, you know, there's a lot to say about being a leader. It's been on my mind a lot lately, especially when it when it concerns what we do, which is building brands. Because just yesterday here at this conference, I, I heard somebody who will remain unnamed say that they didn't really believe in brand uh, as a leader. And I thought that was just really interesting because from my perspective, and the way that I really think about it, there are sort of four characteristics around leadership that are a little bit unmovable, and they have a lot to do with building one's own internal brand. And that really simply is, you know, in order to be a leader, you first have to have some kind of vision. Mm-hmm. It's it's hard to to lead anybody if you don't know sort of what your North Star is or where you're, where you're going for. And this is true of individual leaders and it's true of companies. If you just don't know what you're doing or what your North Star is, it's hard to go. So, so vision's one. I think the second one is passion. And I know passion is something that everybody talks about a lot, but this idea of if you're not getting up in the morning as a leader or an organization feeling like you're doing something that's impacting the world above and beyond just the bottom and the top line, it's, it's hard to to make sure that you're laddering up to something greater and something bigger. So for me, you've got the vision and you've got the passion. And then the third one is all about this idea of persuasion. And that word has negative connotations, but it's this idea of you can have all the passion and the vision in the world, but if you can't communicate and articulate those things, how are you going to get people on board? And it's the same as an individual leader as it is with a company as well. If you, if you don't have the right communication tools to to get that out there, then it just kind of falls on deaf ears. And I'd say the the last one, and then I'd love to get your thoughts on this, is the idea of humility mm. um, as leaders and organizations. And the way that I really think about humility is if you kind of just draw a line in the middle of the page, any page, just draw a line, and you're sort of either above that line or below that line at all times. And it's hard to know which. And when you're below that line, you're you're committed to being right, you're closed, and you are kind of not that curious. And when you're above that line and really being humble, you're committed to learning, you're committed to being open, and you, and you maintain that curiosity. And I think when you look at leaders, that's really what it takes. Yeah. Yeah, that's so true. You know, I'm really struck by that little anecdote of of what you heard mm. and i'm willing to cut whoever that was a little bit of slack and and say they're probably shaped by their realities of of their experiences i i don't think that's an uncommon sentiment uh, among uh, leaders nowadays i think mm-hmm. when you talk about the value of branding the value of storytelling the value of um having a vision that you can articulate and share with others there's a lot of reason to be suspect out there. But how do you think about the realities today, the pressures that leaders, CXOs are facing, and how that shapes how they think about how they see the world? I mean, I think we're kind of in the era where anybody in the C-suite has to do so much more than just their job. 
of what it used to be to either be a chief marketing officer or a chief technology officer or chief digital officer. These days, the number of hats that you have to wear as a leader in any kind of C-suite environment is almost staggering. And to that end, not that surprising that in a lot of these roles, the tenure is getting shorter and shorter Yeah, because it's harder for people to really maintain. I mean, let's just take the CMO, for example. You could do everything from owning a giant budget and a P&L to owning the technology budget on top of it. And then you still have to be the steward of the brand. So it, it just becomes increasingly difficult. So you're seeing leaders having to balance more and more. And I think it's a hard time to be a leader, but an exciting time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also the the notion of what a brand is, what it means, there's mm-hmm. a lot of baggage attached to that. And we're going to get into that in the next episode in more depth. But you start there. But then there's also this notion of we live in this very data-driven world. And there's this perception among a lot of people within our clients that data can solve everything, that it can replace a lot of mm. processes and, and, a, and a lot of procedures and how people solve problems. But I know you have a, a unique perspective on that. No, I mean, it, it's something I think a lot about, given that I come from such a data-driven background as a quantitative psychologist and then working in big tech companies, data has been such a a massive driver for me. And what I've seen, at least across the last decade or so, is this embracing of data has made it really easy for people to focus on the tactics and the execution of what they're doing at the risk of neglecting the foundational or the more humanistic side of things. And so it's really easy to look for data, as you say, look to data for all the answers. But at the end of the end of the day, if you're neglecting the foundational stuff that makes organizations tick, then you can automate and create all the data in the world, but it's not going to solve the problem for you. So it's just interesting to see the balance being really upset, I guess. And that's what I've really seen. It's sort of not that embracing data is a bad thing. It's just been done at the risk of neglecting the foundational stuff. Yeah. What really strikes me about what you said is this idea of tactics versus strategy in terms of thinking. Mm. And you're right. Data is great at giving you a view into how are your tactics doing, uh, measuring you know how you're doing this year versus last year. Strategically, it, it seems like it's not that simple, though. There's, it's a, it's a much more nuanced. And this push for tactics and specialization, whether it's different practices within the umbrella of marketing or, or just business practices in general versus high level strategic thinking and getting back to what you were saying earlier, vision. That is, uh, it, it feels like the pendulum swings from one side to the other. And maybe right now we're in a bit of a flux. I, I think that's a, it's a really good point. You know, it's this, I, I think as almost as human beings, we're drawn to making these binary distinctions between things. Like it's got to be one or the other. And we're not great at looking across the whole spectrum and saying it doesn't have to be data or the humanistic foundational stuff. It's how did those things combine to make both of them better than they would be on their own? And I I think that's really where we should be netting out is to say, what is data really great for? And where do we really embrace it? Where do we take the 
foot off the gas a little bit and say, let's go back to the fundamentals about why we exist. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. You know, on that note, business leaders, uh, particularly the C-suite, they are charged with the success of the organization. And those often have very tangible goals that they're trying to reach. Mm. At the same time, there's this expectation that they have some vision. In your experience, how do leaders typically strike a balance between those two very important imperatives? Yeah, I mean, it's such an interesting question, especially when you're talking about leaders who, by the nature of their business, have to report quarterly earnings or, you know, have to have some accountability to a board. Um, At the end of the day, you know, that balance is a fine balance, but you can't really execute well on all of the tactics that are going to show you that success until you've also taken the time to do the foundational vision building work behind it, because otherwise you just end up executing. And it's really easy, I think, for marketers in particular to tell whatever story you want to with metrics. That's kind of the beauty and also the the danger of data. And so a lot of the time, I'd really like to see people focusing on how doing that foundational vision building work helps drive the outcome and helps drive the tactics. Because when you just have one without the other, it just starts to all feel very groundless. Sure. And I think we're seeing that that shift even in, in popular culture with the business roundtable coming out and saying, you know what, it's not only about shareholder value that matters. You have to look at employees and you have to look at the internal things that matter to an organization as well in order to really make people happy. It's easy to hear those things and be a little bit cynical about that, but this does seem to tie into some of the themes that you're talking about. Yeah, no, and I I think it's fair to be skeptical, but when you look at the emerging workforce, so anybody that's under, let's say, 35 years old, increasingly, they're only going to work for organizations that have purpose and stand for something greater than the top and bottom line. And so if businesses don't start to adjust for that, it's going to be harder and harder to attract good talent. And that ultimately is going to impact their bottom line. Sure. Yeah. Now, when you think back in in your career and the times that you've worked either directly for leaders or, or alongside them, are there any specific traits? Like what makes a great leader? There's there's obviously lots of ways to answer that question, but in thinking about the context of uh, that we serve, what are the qualities of a great leader? No, I mean it's it's one of the most important questions when it comes to workforce dynamics, and there's been a ton of research on what makes for for even thriving teams, and that includes the leadership of those teams. And I say really the number one thing that I've seen are leaders that are able to create something that's called psychological safety. Hmm. Psychological safety is this kind of idea that people on the team or within the organization can really feel free to say what's on their minds without repercussion or feeling stymied by the corporate culture itself. And so leaders that are able to create that dynamic of psychological safety by demonstrating things like empathy and care for people as human beings tend to outperform other teams and outer le- uh, other leaders by by a, quite a big margin. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. Getting back to your original anecdote, 
I know it's not the first time you've been confronted. I know it's not the first time I, I've heard of, of that kind of attitude. Neither of us have a lot of appetite to try and convince someone who has a lot of deep-seated biases against what we do and how we think. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, um, I'm sure you have a response that you go to. What, what would that be? Yeah, it's it's funny because generally when when people have that argument, they fall back in saying things like, well, only the product matters. If you have the best product, then everybody will want it and it doesn't matter what you do with the brand. And you hear that across B2B and B2C brands all the time. But then, you know, it's very easy to point out that at the end of the day, as much as we like to pretend that we're rational people, and that we buy things rationally, we just rationalize our irrationality. <laughs> we don't know why we buy the things that we buy. And often, you know, if that were really true, how, how do companies like Chanel or Rolex sell luxury products if that's not simply the price of brand? Because at the end of the day, the product is somewhat at parity. Sure. And if you're just competing on features of a product, somebody is always going to be faster and better and you're just going to have a race with no finish line. And you see that happen all the time. You can cut prices and become the cheapest, but somebody's always going to be cheaper. And at the end of the day, if brand didn't matter, then we simply wouldn't have the purchase behavior that we see in the world today. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the irony is, is that whether you focus on brand or or even give it any thought as as a leader, by choosing not to think about it, you're actually making a choice about what what your brand mm-hmm. uh, stands for. And the interesting thing about the, the the argument that you know it's about product not brand and if you have the the best product then you don't need brand. Well, if you have the best product, why do you have the best product? How did you develop mm-hmm. the best product? Because the answers to those questions ultimately also speak to it's looking at the same problem but from a different angle. And I'm willing to concede in some cases for some businesses those questions aren't useful or they're, they have success without having answered them. And that's fine. But I think that just because you choose not to think about your brand, think about how your brand is perceived out in the world, doesn't mean that you don't have one. No, completely. And I mean, I, I often will just use a very simple, without trying to be obnoxious, a very simple kind of task for somebody to say, you know, how do you decide which ride sharing app you're going to use when you open up your phone? Because Uber and Lyft offer the exact same product. It's the exact same thing. But yet there's many people who have made a conscious decision to delete one or the other based on something they believe in that's bigger than just the product itself. And it's hard to find people who don't do that. Yeah, absolutely. So do you have any specific experiences on leadership that come to mind as you know we're talking about these issues? I mean, when I think about leadership overall, I, I think a lot about my my time in the tech space. And I'd say when it goes back to really thinking about leaders that have impacted me, it's hard not to go back to Larry Page and Sergey Brin from Google. I know a lot's been written about them, and a lot of people have a lot to say, especially now. But from what they've been able to build, you know, from the very get-go, and just what they initially wanted to do in the world and how they've gone about achieving that goal with such a singular vision is pretty inspiring in a lot of ways. Even if you disagree with a lot of the choices that they've made, it's hard not to look back and and really marvel at the way that they've changed the internet. And when you think about them as leaders, 
How do you think they think about brand? Yeah, I mean, you know, Google in particular made an early investment in hiring a CMO who incidentally is still there. And they, I think they knew early on that not having a brand in that space, even if you look at their name and their logo and the way that they went about kind of presenting a web a webpage so simply with nothing on it said a lot about their brand without having to shout it. And so I think that they did a great job of early on really establishing that we're going to be different in the way that we go to market. And those decisions were not just luck. They were made with a lot of strategy and a lot of thinking behind it. So I think that they've always done a great job investing in the brand. Even look at Android. Android is a strong brand outside of just being an operating system. I often tell people that the Google homepage is the most successful ad ever created. That's interesting. You know, it has a, it has a logo. There's lots of white space, so it passes the old VW lemon uh, <laughs> test. Um, it has a clear call to action. And sometimes right. people will say, well, it doesn't have a headline. But in fact, it does. The genius of the Google homepage, if you think about it as an ad, is that it gets us to write the headline for them. Right, right. Creating an entirely new way for an advertiser to communicate with a consumer. Exactly. Obviously, there's business decisions at the core of that. But alongside with that, there's also brand decisions. I think that's exactly right. And, you know, just on top of that, even just establishing an early set of values that the company abides by, whether or not they're still are all abided by is that for discussion. But the idea that that's where the company started with a really a manifesto about belief is just so critical to yeah, their success. More. Well, Eric, this has been a great conversation. Fantastic follow-up to our last one. And next time, episode three, we're going to talk about the third part of our subhead, an ongoing conversation about brands, leadership, and love. We're going to focus on the brand part of that and what that means to each of us individually, what it means to Novio, how we see it used and abused out in the world, and where we think that might be headed in the future. I, I can't wait. That sounds exciting personally, and I think it's going to be exciting for our listeners as well. Well, Eric, safe travels. Good luck with your water skiing. <laughs> I'll do my best. I'll do my best. This has been Jay Rendon and Eric Solomon for Afternoon Delight, a Novio Brandcast. If listening to us has been indeed a delight, please subscribe, review, and rate us on whatever podcast platform you're partial to. To make a connection, give us feedback, ask a question, even just say hi. You can email us at pod at novio.com Visit us at novio.com slash afternoon delight or find us on Twitter at afternooner. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>